Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to October the 28th, 2009, originally episode 305, You Can't Lose as a Modern Survivalist. Um, this one wasn't quite as far back as yesterday, but we're still talking over eight years. To be exact, 2,932 days ago, from today, as you're listening to this, I sat down and did this uh, episode of the Survival Podcast. And uh, a couple interesting things about this one. While not the level of audio that you're accustomed to today, it's pretty good because this one, even though I was still in the car, I wasn't in the car. What the hell does that mean? That means that, that I was still broadcasting from my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI, if you remember that. But on this particular day, I was able to stay home and broadcast from my home studio. So the audio was much better than your typical show that's over eight years ago. Uh, so that's one interesting thing about it. Another interesting thing about it, and I find this to be just so humbling, really. In this episode, uh, I left in some of the some of the housekeeping because one of the housekeeping items is the celebration of a, a significant number of downloads. That number is one million downloads. Now this is October 2009, so the show was about one year and two months old, 14 months old. Um. Let's see, maybe 15 months old, okay? Um, and it took us 15 months to reach a million downloads. I was really, really proud of that. And, and and when I think back to it, I still am that we were able to do that in that period of time. To go from absolutely nothing and being no one in the world of preparedness, modern survival, which the term didn't exist until I started doing the show, and... Not really doing a lot of advertising. I mean, you guys sharing the show is what grew the show early on. I did a little bit of uh, Google keyword advertising. I used a thing that I don't even think exists anymore called StumbleUpon back then. That was pretty targeted. I think I threw up a few Facebook ads, but it was just about, you know, let's get a couple hundred extra people into the, the, the word of mouth mix and let's see how that goes. And then to get to a million downloads. There's a big lesson there for you guys, and that is you can accomplish just about anything you want to if you're if you'll commit to it and you'll you'll put the effort in. Because the, the kind of the the other side of this now is how long do you think it takes me today to go up by another million downloads? And the answer is about every 6.6 days. About every 6.6 days, we have a roughly 1 million uh, episodes of Survival Podcasts. Now, those are new episodes, old episodes, and all. Most of it's new episodes, though. I mean, generally, you put a show out, it gets the majority of its downloads in the first 48 hours. So we now increase our total millions of downloads. Maybe someday we'll do a contest. And you can guess how many millions of downloads the Survival Podcast has got at this point. But we, we now do in every, call it every week. Call it once a week, we accomplish what it took us initially 15 months to accomplish. And that is a case for busting your ass and getting something done. And a lot of people look at where we're at with the Survival Podcast now, and they go, well, it's easy for Jack. And I'll be honest, it is. 
It is easy because when you have a following who will share the stuff that you put out, who's going to tune in and listen to it, who's going to support you, it does get easy. But it wasn't in the beginning. In the beginning, it was getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes 4, doing a couple hours worth of work to get ready for the episode, get everything ready to go on the blog, so all I had to do was drop in the audio file, get in the car, do the episode, get to work, close the door to my office for 30 minutes, take care of some random stuff, plus get the, the episode uploaded and dropped in, hit submit, and then work a 10-hour day. And then come home and do it all over again. And I'm just saying, guys, if there's something that you want to do as a content producer, get with it and make it happen. If I can do it, anybody can do it. And I think it's interesting now to look back uh, over eight years ago, eight years and ten days, and realize that what was monumental to accomplish in 15 months now is accomplished once a week on average. And, and thanks in no small part to you guys. Next up, just real quick before we start it, um, I think this is one of the best episodes, and feel free to always strip out pieces of my show if you want to share it with people uh, and cut out any kind of intro or self-promotion or anything and just the core. This is one of the best conversion shows we ever did because it really makes the case like there's no way that if you practice the type of teaching that we do here at the Survival Podcast that you lose. If nothing goes wrong, you're still better off. That's right in the clunky tagline itself, and it's just a better way to live. So here we go. All the way back to October 28, 2009, celebrating our first million downloads. Episode 305, You Can't Lose, as a Modern Survivalist. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream, and you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it differently than normal today as I am at home, uh, in the home office versus the personal mobile studio, so you'll get better audio quality. And uh, I won't have to worry about cursing out um, as clown drivers are getting hit or run over. May have to deal with some background noise from the dogs because I've left the office door open today. If that happens, I'll pause and throw them out. Uh, but other than that, this should be a smooth sailing podcast compared to the normal. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how there is no downside to being a prepper, a modern survivalist, a self-sufficiency advocate, a self-reliance person, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're comfortable with. Before we do that, though, we do have to knock out some housekeeping. Um, first of all, let me just tell you something. This is episode 305 of the Survival Podcast, since I neglected that. I guess I'm out of my rhythm because I'm not in the car. Um, but something very special happened yesterday. Yesterday, we had our one millionth download of the Survival Podcast, one episode or the other. One million, one thousand some odd times the show's been downloaded as of yesterday, and that announcement's being made on episode 305. I, I can't really express how grateful I am to all of you guys for helping me do that. I, I it, It's absolutely unbelievable that a show that's 15 months old has had more than a million downloads. It's unheard of. 
And uh, again, I thank you tremendously for your efforts that have helped make that possible. Thank you. I just wanted to announce that. And there's a forum thread where we've been tracking this since June, and we knew we were going to do it this year. And I'll put a link in today's show notes. So that's first part of the housekeeping, just to thank you to everybody. Spend an energy there. Now you burn it, it releases a certain amount of energy. You could probably create a generator using wood gas, produce more electricity that could then be put into an electric car, than you're ever going to get out of the alcohol it takes from all the effort that goes into growth. It just is a lost leader. It doesn't work. One of you guys, guy I really respect, sent me an email about this guy that has this whole thing, you know, alcohol can be a gas and all his research and his facts. Well, there's facts and there's pseudo-facts. So, like, one of his facts is that, well, most of the ethanol produced is from corn waste, right? It's like after they feed it to livestock. No, it's not. You, you can't make very much of anything from corn stalks and from the little pieces inside them, the uh, cobs. They use corn. They mash corn. Uh, he also said that most of the corn is used to feed livestock. No, it's not. Go to the grocery store, pick up anything on the counter, anything on the shelves that's sweetened in any way, shape, or form. The number one ingredient in most of our foods today, high fructose corn syrup. I'm not saying that's good, but it's in all of our food. Corn is everywhere. And that corn sugar that's used there is the same corn sugar that's converted to ethanol. And the bigger thing is you're missing the whole point. The reason that this is just a bad idea, this whole biofuels being utilized by anything that grows on the, on the, on the land, is we are reaching a point at which we are no longer able to sustain life on planet with the planet's output of food. It is estimated that we need to increase our agricultural production over the next 50 years by 76%. While that is happening, we are depleting aquifers, both shallow and, and, and the fossil aquifers that will never be replaced. Land has become fallow. We are growing deserts. Our number one production that we're producing now, the number one thing that we're expanding is deserts. There are hundreds of square miles of new desert in China every year that are created by failed agriculture. We're doing it in the United States. A lot of the desert southwest that's so unusable and ungrowable, it used to grow all kinds of food. We destroyed it pre-World War I and then in between World War I and pre-World War II by the way that we treated it. Growing our own fuel is not the way to solve our problems. Now, I think there's some amazing things that are being done with algae. And that shows promise. I think that biodiesel has some potential as long as we start figuring out how to make it actually using waste products and see it as a supplement. I'm not even totally opposed to the alcohol as a fuel concept, but overall, it doesn't work. If we want alternative energy for the... There's two things here, too. This is the other thing I want to cover before I get into today's topic. Um, there's two things that we look at when we look at independence in regards to energy. We look at what the mass population considers independence, and that is that we have to get our oil right now from Russia, from Venezuela, from Mexico, and from various Arab states, none of whom are actually really good friends of ours. Even the Mexicans aren't really our great friends because they keep sending us their people, and their people keep sending our money back to their country. And they're the friendliest country out of all of those. And Canada, who I guess we're friendly with, but we're sure paying them a lot for their oil. So one definition of energy independence would be to create enough of our own energy in America to run America. And that's fine, and I, I get that, and I understand that. But none of the things that are being done by the corporate world that are touted as alternative energy are actually leading us in that direction. Further, they don't solve your problem. Your problem is not that your energy comes from 
oil that some sheik made some money on. That's not your problem. Your problem is that your energy comes through a system of taxation and fees that you have to continually pay for. So when I talk about energy independence, I'm talking about energy independence for you as an individual. See, I want the solar panels on your roof. I want the wind generator in your backyard. I want the biggest conglomeration of, of joining together to be a small neighborhood that puts in a couple really big wind generators and supplements all the power in the entire neighborhood and tells the local and federal government to go, screw, we don't want your help, we don't want your involvement, and you don't get a piece of the action. That's what I want to see. Because when you do that, then you actually solve the problem. The problem for Americans is how much of our money is sucked up and wasted into the energy systems. The distribution, the conversion, the exploration, the extraction. And then we get all the pollution to go with it. I'm not talking about carbon. I'm talking about the actual pollution that comes from all this crap. So none of the problems are solved if... Your local electrical company sets up a couple big solar banks and a couple big wind farms and starts to produce a portion or even all of their energy that way. Because they're still going to be taxed when they produce the energy, when they distribute the energy. You're going to be taxed when you consume the energy. You're going to go to work to pay your electric bill. They're going to tax you on that. You're going to have to run your vehicle on something. They're going to tax you on that. Where if you start producing your own electricity, okay, we stop feeding the beast that's, that's enslaving us. And that's not dramatic language. That's the facts. And I don't mean the beast in some weird new world order. You guys that are new to the show don't understand this. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. Right? So I'm not talking about this big evil machinery apparatus. I'm talking about self-inflicted slavery, the way the majority of Americans have made ourselves attached to these systems. And we are dependent upon these systems. And every time we use a system, we make the system stronger and ourselves weaker through a consumer-driven economy fueled by taxes on everybody at every level. That's what's going on. So that was what my answer was about yesterday. That's a long follow-up, but I thought it was important because this is something, if you want to be a modern survivalist, if you want self-sufficiency, if you want independence, you need to understand you need to comprehend that it won't matter if we take every square inch of wasted desert and put up solar panels and every square inch of wasted plains and put up windmills and we put up tanks across the entire tidal uh, coastline of the United States from, you know, from the Atlantic all the way through the Gulf of Mexico, hop over Mexico from the Pacific up to Alaska. It won't matter if we produce all our electricity that way and if we create vehicles that run completely on electricity as long as the powers that be are still in control of the production and distribution of that power nothing really changes for you because there is no shortage of oil yet and there probably won't be for at least 50 years at least 50 years we have over a hundred years of natural gas and we are not warming the planet by our tailpipes that is a lie that is a myth so do I want alternative energy yes but I want it for you and I want it for millions of Americans in their hands, in their control, exactly the way that I tell you, even if you're producing only a portion of your electricity, put a portion of your wealth in silver, gold, and commodities. I don't care if it's food, I don't care if it's land, but things that you control that are out of the hands of anybody else. So you want alternative energy? To me, an alternative means that you change who controls the energy, not necessarily what produces it. So let's start talking about how that blends in with today's main topic, which is there's no downside to the things that we do. And, you know, this really is the primary tenet of everything that we talk about here at the Survival Podcast.
what we say with our you know our show tagline is helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And where that came from is when I was putting this show together and I said I wanted to make something that when people heard it, they would keep coming back to and they would change the things they actually do. They would change how they think and they would change how they act and they would continue to grow and develop with it. And I said to myself, what causes people to get involved with the concept of preparations, uh, survivalism, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, all of these things, storing food, what have you, but then has them fall away and go back to sleep. Why do so many people that start this journey fail to remain on the path? I won't say complete it because they think you're on the path for eternity. As long as you are a human walking the planet, if you're living this way, you're living this way. There's no, okay, now I'm done and I can just pretend like you know it's just there and it's only there if I need it, like an insurance policy. There's some analogies to insurance policies, but it doesn't go that far. And what I realized was that as I looked at all the times that people got really active and started preparing, they were all around acute emergencies. They were around things like Y2K scare. They were around things like fear of the, the, the bird flu when we thought it was going to mutate and come over here. They were around things like the first and the most recent stock market crash, which you could have seen coming if you pulled your head out of the sand and looked at the facts that were in front of you. Uh, it was around things like Hurricane Katrina. It was around things like 9-11. What happened is people freaked out because something did happen, so what's coming next? Or they thought something was going to occur, and oh my God, what if it happens? So they go into a panic mode, and they go out and they start to assemble whatever they can for whatever their vision of what might happen could be. In other words, two people that are both freaked out over the same event took entirely different steps to prepare for that event. One went nuts and went out and bought 50 cases of MREs and a generator, and didn't buy enough gas for the generator so he could actually run it. Um, and then another person went out and bought a bunch of Cougarans or something like that and just thought, okay, well, I'm safe now. And, and another person went and bought like 50 gallons of water, stuck them in a closet upstairs, and really had no idea why they were doing it. But what we had in common was everybody was spending a great deal of money very, very rapidly with no uniformity to their planning process whatsoever, with no concept of what the actual threat was, and with no way to improve their quality of life unless that event occurred. So in other words, they were getting things into place that if their quality of their life was deeply descended, went down because of an event, the things that they put in place would push them back up a little bit toward normalcy. And that was the only objective. And they said, well, that's not good enough. That will never work. Because we are humans. And when we prepare for something that doesn't come, sooner or later, we quit worrying about it. We go back to sleep. This is why people got killed by the stock market crash around 2001, and then got killed by the stock market crash in 2008. Even though the indicators were identical, even though you should have learned your lesson, even though you said to yourself when it happened the first time, oh, not again, it happened again. Why? Because we had this period in between where everything looked okay. And that was the problem. So the solution to the problem was to come up with a methodology, to come up with a series of things that people could do that made their life better today, even if nothing went wrong. So I said, well, is there anything that we need to change, or do we just need to change our perception and our order and our combination of things and how we go about doing things? 
So he started to examine all the things that preppers do. Storing food, paying off debt, saving cash, having some of their investments in gold and silver, having land, growing some of their own food, knowing some wild and bushcraft. I started examining all this stuff. They said, hey, wait a minute. All of this stuff, all of it, makes perfect sense today, even if nothing goes wrong. Why doesn't it already happen? Why don't people already see that? And what I realized is it was that people were doing one or two of these items, and that there were tremendous numbers of people that were investing in gold all the time. In fact, they had their own little gold cult. They would call them gold bugs. And they were doing that, but the person that was a prepper that went the gold route wasn't really a gold bug. Didn't really love or understand or want to interpret the investment. It was just a hedge against something going wrong. And when that didn't go wrong, when the price of gold went down a little bit, man, I should have just put it in a CD. That there were entire groups of people that were huge into the permaculture movement. That were big into growing trees and growing, re- replenishing crops and having little gardens and doing things in very efficient ways. And, and they did that. But the person that was preparing put together a little garden crop. It didn't really learn the process. It didn't learn how to make it easy for themselves. And then when nothing went wrong, man, that garden was a lot of work and I didn't, you know, I could have got more food from the grocery store for less money and effort. And all of those things added up. So I said, well, what if we put them together in a way where people can phase into them and slowly pick and choose and understand how to actually fully develop each one of them as a concept that fits your life and only consumes as much resources as you're willing to allocate to it and make this a long-term process where we don't have to get ready for tomorrow. Now, tomorrow might be a disaster, but... We can either start getting ready for a disaster today or we can not start getting ready for a disaster today. Those are our only two choices. So we're going to work with the belief that we have some time to prepare for whatever our next disaster is going to be. And the reality is that all of us have disasters in our lives. No one goes through life without a disaster. No one goes through life without losing someone they love, getting fired from a job, having a localized weather event, having a tree fall through their roof. Um having some kind of a local catastrophe, whatever it is, something happens to everybody, and we have multiple disasters within our life. So let's start off with an assessment of the things that are most likely to occur. And that led me to threat probability. Threat probability is simply put as this, the least number of people affected by a disaster, an individual portion. So you say unemployment's big, but it's not. It's, um, if it's 9 million people that lost jobs, it's 9 million individual disasters. Because when the guy that lives across town from you loses his job, that unemployment is not his, that's not your disaster, it's his. So things like unemployment or death of a spouse, things like localized weather events that knock out a neighborhood, things like some guy running nuts through a neighborhood and trashing houses, or anything that could happen at the very small family or very, you know, your neighborhood area was the thing that you were most likely to have to deal with. And then as we moved out to kind of a city disaster, it actually became less likely that you would deal with. Then we went into small region, large region, national, and global. And the larger the area of effect, the bigger the disaster, the greater the impact, but the lower the probability. So since we can't get ready overnight, well then why don't we just get ready initially for the things that are most likely to happen to you? So we take some pragmatic things. 
and we say, okay, well, since the most likely thing that you're going to have to deal with that's a real disaster is somebody losing their job or both people losing their job, the first thing you need to do is put some reserve cash away and get rid of your debt. Additionally, the other thing that's highly likely, unfortunately, in this world, that any individual, if we put enough people together, are going to have to deal with is one of the breadwinners in the home will die or one of the children will die. Morbid? Yes. Sad? Yes. True? Yes. So everybody in the house should have life insurance. Very pragmatic. Not your typical survivalist thinking. But it is a step that can be taken very efficiently, very quickly. And then we started saying, well, okay, now let's look at some other things. And this is where I'll start explaining how there's no downside. I said, well, you know, one way or the other, you're going to need to eat. So you're going to have to, you know, have food. And the primary way that people get food is that they go buy it. And what most people don't realize is if you look at the quantity of food in your home at any given time, generally at least half of it, if not more, exists in your cupboard, in your pantry, and on your shelves. Only about half of your food, your actual real food, when you start taking bulky things out like, I don't know, gallons of milk and juice and stuff like that, there's not that much food that's actually held in your freezer and your refrigerator, comparatively speaking. Which means the majority of food in people's homes is what we call non-perishable goods. It has shelf lives from 90 days to out past a year. So these are canned foods. These are all different types of things uh, that people... So I said, hey, you know what? The, the preppers of old, back all the way back into the 70s, when people were preparing for nuclear war, had a philosophy of start storing what you eat and eat what you store. So these long-term storables, that's fine, but make sure you're storing some of the food that you eat every day. I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. So I started cataloging the things in my home that we ate. So let's start storing that. And we did. And then I realized something. Every penny that I spent on that food, I was going to spend anyway. I wasn't spending an additional dime. I might be spending it today instead of tomorrow, but I also started analyzing things and realizing something. I was actually spending less money on food per year once I got a storage uh, facility set up because of a couple things. One of them was when you buy things in bulk, you go to your discount stores, you pay less per unit. Uh, number two was that once we had stuff stored up and we went to the store, and maybe normally we would buy, oh, I don't know, let's say a can of canned chicken that we were going to use for uh, making uh, chicken enchiladas. Well, none of the canned chicken that we liked was on sale. We didn't buy any. But what if you wanted enchiladas tonight? No problem. I go home. I'd open my cupboard, I'd pull out a can of chicken, i pull it to the front just like a grocery store, go out to one of the storage bins, pick up a can of chicken, and put it in the back row and tick it off on the inventory as needing to be replaced. And sooner or later, that canned chicken would go on sale and we'd replace it. And I said, you know what, this is a much better way to live your life today, even if nothing goes wrong. I'm saving money. People come over at the last minute, and you're going to cook dinner for them. Let's get basic here. How many times has that happened? Oh, man, i got to run out. i got to get something. They're not prepared to have company. Please, they show up at my house any night. If I want to cook dinner, I can cook dinner. Why? Because there's several months' worth of food in the house here. We can go up to Arkansas, hang out there, and never go to the store. Why? Months and months and months of food in the house. Just a better way to live. Spend less money, but you're prepared for disaster. Absolutely no downside. So well, what about this debt reduction stuff? There's entire industries around reducing debt. That must be good for you. It is. 
Dave Ramsey is a nationally syndicated host. His entire spiel is paying off debt. If he'd stick to that, he'd have great advice. Unfortunately, he gives investing advice, which is often terrible. But debt reduction, that makes complete total sense. The person that's debt-free doesn't fear being laid off from a job. They're not afraid. That means they're more bold and decisive in their decisions. That means they're actually a better employee. That means they don't take abuse from an employer. If they're not being treated right, they confidently go out and go to work for a competitor or switch industries altogether because they don't care. Because they can survive a job loss. I'm ready for tornadoes or hurricanes or floods or a complete and total collapse of the entire nation's economy. Do you think I'm afraid that you'll take my job away? The hell with you. That confidence only comes from a person who's debt-free and has sustainability at home of at least 90 days without starting to... See, 90 days of sustainability is defined in our modern society as 90 days worth of cash. So I have a savings account with a 90-day emergency fund. Good idea. Think you should do it. Really, really think you should do it. But I would prefer that that 90 days worth of cash, you don't even have to look at it for 90 days. If you have 90 days worth of food... You get some kind of secondary income stream to pay for miscellaneous crap. You have no debt. You got to keep the lights on, basically. See, in that situation, you could go take a part-time job delivering pizzas until you find what you want, work 15 hours a week doing pizzas and 15 hours a week looking for a job, and you'll find what you want and you don't really care. What if 10% of our population lived that way? How much more stable would our overall economy and nation be? How much more... And the heck with that. How much more stable would your economy, your personal economy be, if you live that way? How much more confident would you be in your life? Another thing that I believe in heavily, and I don't know if this is a survivalist topic, but to me it is, and that is I actually believe that taxes theft... Taxes the theft of your private property to redistribute it to somebody else. Now, there are some basic things that I'm okay. I'm a, I'm a libertarian at heart, but I'm not a purist libertarian. I'm okay with the government building roads and railroad tracks. I'm fine with that. But you know how much tax percentage everybody needs to pay to pull that off? And national defense, if we didn't outspend the rest of the world combined, if we just had a defensive military... Highly technical, highly specialized, large body count military. Two, three percent of everybody spending, spending, not earnings. We wouldn't even have to tax earnings. The problem with taxation is it's what I started talking about today with the energy dependence. It's not just the dependence. It's the system and the apparatus of production, distribution, delivery, and consumption. See, at those four junctions, we're taxed. The government makes more money on a kilowatt burned in your house than the electric company does because they taxed the company that brought the, the fuel to the producer. They taxed the producer for producing. They taxed the distribution for distributing. And then they tax you at the consumer level for consuming. And in that chain of four events, there are all types of income that must be earned to sustain those, all types of actions. And there's fees, taxes, and permits on every single one of them. And by the time you pay 13 cents for a kilowatt, 
or 16 cents for a kilowatt, and the guy that sold it to you makes a penny, the government's made a dollar. By the time the guy that sells you the kilowatt makes a penny, the government makes a dollar. And what do they do with that dollar? They set up more programs and more systems of dependence, and the ultimate goal is to make sure more than 50% of the people are dependent on the government and are afraid to lose that dependency, so they'll let the government do whatever it wants. So if we practice the mentality of taxes theft, then what do we do? Do we not pay it? Oh, no, because that would you know break a rule of survivalism. To stay free, liberated, and alive. Well, you might be alive, but you're not going to be free and liberated if you don't pay your taxes. They're going to come get you. But what you do is you hire a good accountant. You take every legal deduction you can. And then you minimize taxation through action. What do I mean by that? I need to buy something. I can go buy it new and pay sales tax and fund Rick Perry's governor's mansion. Or I can buy it used from somebody, pay cash for it. It's our business only. I can buy it on the Internet if I can't find it used locally out of my state and avoid state taxation. Now, there's still tax in that system, but I've reduced it. I can go to the store and buy food, and you go, well, Jack, food's not taxed, right? But when I go to the store and I buy food, you know what? I drove there. My gas is taxed. I had to earn income. My income is taxed. The person that sells me the food has income. Their income is taxed. The food had to get there. The fuel used to run the vehicle was taxed. The guy driving the vehicle, he earned income to go there. He was taxed. On his way home, he buys a six-pack of beer. He is taxed. The beer was brought to the store by a beer delivery truck. The fuel was taxed. The guy driving the truck earned income to bring the beer to the store. It was taxed. The guy that grew the grain that sold it to the malter paid tax. The malter sold the grain to the brewer who was taxed. Somebody drove the trucks which burned fuel which were taxed. They earned income. It was taxed. Do you see the chain of events of taxation that, that take effect? Because you went down to the store and bought a bag of salad and three green and three green peppers and two tomatoes. What if you had a garden and you walked out your back door you picked your tomatoes and your peppers, and you cut your salad that came in a bag. You brought it back in and ate it. You stop the cycle. You break the chain of events. What happens if 10 million people start living that way in this country? 30 million people. It's 10%. That's all it is, 10%. Do those people have better lives? Yes. Do we have more independence from foreign sources of energy and foreign sources of food, which is a bigger problem, yes. But does everything get better for you, the individual? Because you understand that tax and growing a garden are linked together? Of course it does. Now, you go to sell your house, you have a great big beautiful garden in your backyard. Your neighbor's selling his house, which is technically equivalent without the big beautiful garden. Which property is more desirable? See, when you start to break this down and you take this systematic approach, you start to assemble a lifestyle built around preparedness, a lifestyle built around self-reliance, and the ultimate goal being self-sufficiency. You never lose. And that's why there's been a million downloads of the Survival Podcast. 
Because people have started that journey. When you start that journey and it feels good and it works, you don't stop. You don't quit. You don't go, oh, the world didn't blow up. The hell with it. All these loons that are freaking out now. 2012, the Mayans predicted the end of the earth and so did Nostradamus and we're all going to die. Oh, please. And what will you say when we're all still here in 2013? Now, most of you that freak out over some kind of nonsensical thing like this will be selling me your generator on eBay for half of what you paid for it. You'll be selling my listeners your MREs for half of what you paid for them. And you'll be going back to digging a hole in the sand to stick your head into. And you'll go back to either being an ostrich or a sheep. Your choice. Or both. A sheep ostrich. It's going to be your choice. But that's what happens when people prepare for acute events, when people don't think about the entire process. You know, another thing that we talk about a lot around here is owning land. And owning land being true wealth. And I think that's more true than at any other time. Now, it's true that you'll be taxed on the ownership of land. That's absolutely true. It's a fact that can be mitigated, not eliminated. You can mitigate it with your choice of land. You can buy land that's considered rural, undeveloped, unimproved, and pay much lower taxes than you would anywhere else. You can move out into the country. Or you can move to the city, and you can do whatever you can to eliminate or minimize those taxes, or so minimize all your other expenses that you're not as concerned about that tax. But I think we need to start focusing on owning land. And... I think that if we looked at America on the surface, we'd say there's more land ownership in America than any other place in the world. Because there are so many people that own their own homes with a little piece of dirt around it in America. And I'm not saying that, you know, your tenth of an acre or your half an acre in suburbia isn't land. It is. It is the type of land I'm talking about. I prefer more. But if you're okay with a half an acre, fine. You can do a lot with a half an acre if you're smart about it. But you don't own your land in America until you own your land in America. the hell does that mean? It means as long as you get a bill every month from a bank or a financial institution to pay what they call a mortgage on, you don't own your land, the bank does. So I think we need to focus on paying off our land. That's part of being debt-free. You see how the two link together. Just the land is the one debt that all suffer through longer than debt for anything else. I'll suffer through land debt longer than I'm willing to suffer through car debt. I'm not even willing to accept credit card debt for 30 days. There is no credit card debt. You don't need a credit card. That is a lie. Throw your credit cards away today. Please don't give me the argument again, folks. You don't need a credit card. The only thing your credit card's good for is after you cancel it, and you scrape the numbers off the front so no one can use your name or anything, you can use it to wind paracord around and uh, carry some extra paracord that way. That's about all a credit card's good for. And I saw a guy on the forum that makes pictures out of uh, expired credit cards. That was pretty cool. Otherwise, they're freaking useless. But when we look at land ownership, until you pay that mortgage, it's not yours. It don't belongs to the bank. And Glenn Beck was talking yesterday about something that I think is actually possible. What he was saying is that our economy screwed. The dollar is trash. The United States doesn't have enough gold in our possession as a nation to go back to the gold standard directly. Can't be done. Sooner or later, the rest of the world is going to say the hell with you. Your money's worthless, and they're going to, it's going to be devalued in the global marketplace. 
The one resource that we truly have in this country is land. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae hold 55% of the mortgages in the United States right now. That means Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which have been completely, totally taken over by the government at this point, own 55% of the land in the United States. And if you wanted to revalue the currency, you would revalue the currency against the land by nationalizing the financing of the land completely, the other 45%. Could happen. That happens, the most valuable piece of commodity you can possibly own is paid-for land that the state has no claim to. You see, they won't go take private land. At least not at first. Hopefully not in our lifetimes. Hopefully we won't have to fight that fight. What they'll do is they'll take the financing. It's just as good. Because 99% of people will never actually own their land. It'll be held against them in a thing called a mortgage. You know where the word mortgage comes from? It starts out with mort. It is immortality. And the second part is gauge. Gauge in the Old English means to grip. To be in a mortgage is to be in a death grip. It's a tool. You can use it. But my advice to you is own some land outright. Pay it off. It seems impossible until you're not in credit card debt, car debt, and everything else. Pretty soon, you can pay off a house in five to seven years. That's as long as you're not trying to buy a million-dollar house that's worth $200,000 because it's in a trendy area, like a fool. You actually think about the real value of the property and what it can give back to you. But let's say you do own some land outright. Let's say none of this ever happens. Let's say all this conspiracy talk, as you call it, is nonsense and never occurs. Are you hurt by owning land? Real estate's been the best investment in the United States as long as the United States has existed. There's been no safer place, especially land, raw land, to put your money than land, dirt, terra firma. You can take a look at the recent real estate market crash and just go, well, that was overvalued. And trust me, folks, I wasn't buying property when it was overvalued. In fact, when property was overvalued, I bought this house for uh, less than I can sell it for today, the one I'm sitting in right now. I can make a profit on my house, and I've only had it five years. Don't tell me there weren't always good deals out there if you looked hard, chopped hard, and thought about what the hell you were doing and didn't believe the the real estate agents that this market is heating up. We better put it in an offer today or somebody might tell Oh, shut up. God, that nonsense drives me crazy. I despise the average real estate agent even more than I despise the average investment advisor because of that mentality, that nonsensical talk. But if you think about it rationally and you own land and you own it outright, your life's better today. You know, I think what I'm going to close up with today is the most important part of all this. And that is that I can tell you all these things. I can give you all these ideas. I can give you all these plans. I can motivate you. I can smack you in the head once in a while and wake you up into reality. I can piss you off, I can make you happy, I can make you inspired. I can tell you step by step by step what I'm doing and how I do it. But it will never, ever work for you if you try to emulate me 100% or emulate anybody 100%. You are your own person, your own human, your own creation. It is up to you to determine how you will prepare to live your life tomorrow and 10 years from now, but to start doing that today. It is up to you to determine what you're going to do in case we have major natural or man-made disaster or in case we don't. It's up to you. And I think that's the biggest non-downside to prepping. You don't have to do 
anything. And you certainly don't have to do everything. But I do suggest that you start doing something that you're comfortable with and do it a little bit at a time. And incrementally, I don't have to worry about whether you're going to see the wisdom in paying off your debt. Because if you decide you're going to start with a garden and you start eating food from your garden and you start spending less money at the grocery store, you're going to have surplus money. You're going to start to realize that you like surplus money and that debt sucks because it takes away money. that could also be surplus money and you'll start paying off your debt. As soon as you make that first extra payment on your debt, you're going to become insatiable to get rid of it because you're going to become empowered and you're going to have a belief that it actually can happen. And if you have five debts, when you pay the first one off, then you're going to turn into a maniac. I don't have to make that happen. That's a natural consequence of your initial action. And when that happens, you're going to start scraping and you're going to go nuts and you're going to kill those other four debts. And then you're going to have extra money in your hands. And you're going to look at this and go, boy, this feels really good. I like this. You'll start thinking, what do I do with this extra money? Do I blow it? Or do I start saving some of it? I think I'm going to save some of it. When you start saving money and you take and you go and you look at your savings account, and maybe you've never had more than $1,000 in a plain old savings account before in your life, and you look in one there one day, and there's $4,800, you're going to go, holy crap, I'm taking $200 just so it says $5,000 out of my checking right now, I'm going to survive. And all of a sudden, one day, you're going to look in there, and there's $6,000 in there. You're going to go, holy crap, I can make $10,000. And you're going to go on a quest to save $10,000. And all of a sudden, it'll happen. And then it becomes 20 that you want to save. And some people say, I don't even make $20,000 in a year. You'll figure out how to make more money, and you'll figure out how to save more money. And all of a sudden, you'll start looking around, you'll realize, I actually, now I have stuff. I own a portion of my home or all of my home. I have money. I don't want it taken away from me. Tax is theft. They want my money, too, not just the poor person's money. Hey, I am that poor person. I was that poor person two years ago. Wait a minute, I don't even make that much more money. Why do I feel this way? Oh, because I have something now that's really mine instead of an illusion. And what that's going to do is make you start realizing there are people out there that want what you have. That's not paranoia. That's reality. You don't think it's true? Shut the power off in your city for 72 hours and see if nobody shows up looking to take away from the haves to give to the have-nots or to become the haves because they are the have-nots. It's happened every time it's ever occurred anywhere. So then you start saying, well, you know, I need to make sure that my family's protected. So pragmatic things like insurance start to make sense. And then all of a sudden, when you hear on the news that we have a new threat from a disease or an environmental threat, you start to say, you know, there could be some validity to this. And then all of a sudden, you're storing a little bit of food. And then one day you need something and you think you have to run to the store and you say, oh, wait a minute. You run out in the garage and you go, we have a can of that right there. Huh. That was pretty cool. And one day you go to the grocery store and your wife says, hey, this crap's on sale. Let's buy a bunch of it. You say, cool. And she says, you know, I was going to get some of this, but this looks really high priced today. And you say, don't buy it. She says, well, what are we going to do? You go, we got ten of those at the house. And all of a sudden you're empowered. And all of a sudden you're your great-grandfather. You have the wisdom of that many generations ago because it never left you. Because it was always inside you. Because it's who you really are. And all that it took was to break free from the system. And all of a sudden, you're not going to let Jack Spirico tell you how to assemble your plan. Or anybody else out there that talks about this stuff tell you how. You're going to listen to them so you can improve the things that you're doing in a way that makes sense for you. Because that's what the hell you want. 
And when somebody comes on the TV and they start telling you what to think or how to feel about an issue, you're going to tell them to cram it up their cram hole. As from our, one of my favorite little stupid movies, Dodgeball. And you're going to decide to think for yourself for a change. And you're going to realize that none of those people in Washington, D.C. are really your friends. That they all spend your money. They all damage your environment. They all damage your economy. They all tax you in both visible and invisible ways. All you're doing is choosing the method of your own execution. You're going to stop listening to them. And you're going to take charge and control of your own life. How do I know this is what will happen to you? This is what happens to everybody. It's what happens to everybody that starts the journey with the right attitude. It's where you end up. And it's not because I lead you there. For God's sakes, those of you that call me a leader, don't call me a leader. I'm not leading you anywhere. All I'm doing is showing you who you are. And I'm not even showing you who you are. I'm just giving you some things you can do to discover who you are for yourself. And when you do that, all of a sudden, all these things that have held you back into this cocoon of falsehood, just crumble. It's like a dam. You have a dam holding back a massive amount of water. And a little tiny hole forms in that dam, and a little bit of water starts to squirt out of that hole. The whole dam's going to come down. You look at this massive dam, there's only one tiny leak. doesn't seem to make sense, but everybody knows it. Everybody knows once that little hole starts, that it's it's not only going to get bigger, the speed at which it enlarges will increase over time. At first, it'll just start to get a little bit bigger, and then a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger. And then all of a sudden, it'll start to get huge, and then giant chunks fall out that are bigger than the hole itself. And when that happens, the whole thing crumbles, and boom. And whatever's on the other side of that dam is toast. It's gone. It's wiped out into oblivion. Well, when you take this plastic lifestyle that's been wrapped around you, this illusion that's been created by society, that you're supposed to work until you're 65 and you're dead. Now we're supposed to work until we're 72 and you're dead before we get the money back they stole from us in the first place. That we're supposed to waste the best years of our lives. That we're supposed to throw all our money into some mutual fund that some jackass in a suit and tie that couldn't get a job pumping gas a year ago before they trained him in relationship sales says we're supposed to do that. That we're supposed to take all of our wealth and lock it away for retirement when many of us will be dead before we get there, or by the time we get there, won't be able to physically enjoy it the way we really plan to. When we break away one chink in the armor that says it's okay to be in debt for the rest of your life, and most people never own a car, you're better off leasing it. We break away the chink in the armor that says it doesn't matter what you paid for your house, because you're going to move in seven years anyway, and buy a bigger house, and then a bigger house, and then a bigger house and continuously move up. Once we break one tiny ray of light past that plastic facade, it's like that pinhole in the dam. And you see that light and you go, man, this makes sense. And then you realize how exposed you are. And then you do something about it. Exactly what, exactly how, that's your choice, not mine. But if you start just with little steps and you start to do the things that make sense to you, we're all going to get to the same place in the end. And that's a place where we're more secure, we're more confident, we're more stable, we're better prepared to live every day as it comes, and we're better prepared if the worst ever does happen. And because of that, we can live better today because we know with a certainty 
a level of security in our future that most people never know. And like I said, you are your great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather lived that way. He didn't have an iPod and an Internet. He didn't have all this great information sharing. It took him 20 years to learn what you can learn in 20 days. But he had wisdom. That was the difference of that generation. Your grandmother, if somebody would have sent her a pre-approved credit card in 1950, she would have composted it. That's what you should do. If you start taking the path, even if you argue with me now about how you get airline miles or rebates with your credit card, sooner or later you'll be shredding credit card applications and canceling accounts. Because it's going to happen. Because you realize the truth. The truth is, you control your life and the lives of those around you more than any media source, more than any government official, more than any law, more than any environmental factor. It's all about you. So, with that, I think I've gone on long enough today. And I think I'll wrap up. But what I really wanted to say at the end here is really simple. Just understand that there is absolutely nothing to lose by being more informed and more prepared. That's it. And that's all that survivalism is really talking about in this day and age. When we talk about modern survivalism uh, and different things that people do. More informed, more prepared. That's it. And that's a great way to start living that better life. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent. 